Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Acts chapter 12, verse 2, is the last mention that Luke mentions John. And Luke, the writer Luke, who followed the twelve pretty much through the entire journey of the public life of Christ. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters, and who would write the Acts of the Apostles, 28 chapters. Luke, uh, who is probably one of the most precise uh, disciples who laid up the events one after the other. Luke, at chapter 12 of Acts, stops mentioning John. Now, it's not because John died. It's not because John goes into obscurity. At chapter 12, now remember, there's still another, what, 16 more chapters of Acts and the early church. But John is not mentioned in those last 16 chapters of the gospel of, or Acts of the apostles. John is not mentioned. He's just not there. And the last time he is mentioned is Acts chapter 12, verse 2. I'm going to read it here. He, King Herod Agrippa, had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And that's the last time Luke mentions it. So he mentions the death of his brother. And I'm intrigued. But what we're doing here is we're looking at snapshots of John and the interaction. We've been doing this for the last four weeks. Invite you to go back on our website. You can grab all of them. From John, the early moments of John, right to John's interaction when he was called by Jesus. James and John, sons of Zebedee, left the fishing nets and followed Jesus. And they, days into following Jesus, there was the miracle at Cana, the wedding where Jesus turned the water into wine. And then they continue to follow Jesus. And John writes over and over of the events of what takes place. Last week, we settled in the area where John is the only of the 12 who makes record of the great I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection. I am the vine. I am the gate. And he goes through the I am, seven of them. The other gospel writers did not record that. John records that strategically. We talked last week that atheists, agnostics, and those of other religions who declare that Jesus is a good man, or Jesus is a great teacher, or that Jesus is a prophet, there's a major problem with that. Because if Jesus was good, then he was a lunatic because he declared himself God. And if he was messing with this, then he is not good and he is not simply a teacher. He's crazy. If he declared himself to be the son of God and he wasn't, Is that really a good man? We talked to that. John brings that out. That Jesus clearly indicated he was the son of God. Others didn't simply claim him to be the son of God. He declared himself the son of God. And so there was nothing to be left to be confused. John was clear and over and over brought this out that Jesus declared himself as the way, the only way. He was the bread of life. Not a bread. All of them were the, not a. He is not one of many. He is the only. And we embrace that today. We acknowledge that today. 
John pulls that out of describing who Jesus is. So we come to this portion of text where John moves into a bit of obscurity that Luke does not mention. As a matter of fact, Luke only mentions John about a handful of times. You can probably count it in one hand, the amount of time Luke mentions John. And most of them, he refers to him as the brother of James, which is, you know, not highly prestigious. He's John, the brother of James. And while Acts traces probably one of the most notorious killers in the New Testament, Saul turned Paul, and he tracks all his story, and, 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 and Luke talks a lot about Peter. You know, that great declaration came from Luke where Jesus said to Peter that uh, he would build his church upon the foundation of what Peter had spoken of and that the gates of hell will not prevail. I mean, that was pretty... Peter had a clear indication from Jesus what his future might look like. But not John. John is often pushed to the back, not spoken of much by the gospel writers. And yet, while others' ministries were skyrocketing, Peter's name would be a household name. Paul's name would be a household name. James would die fairly early among the disciples. But John... But John, that's why I find this intriguing. That's why it's worth slowing down and following the person of John. John chapter 19, 25 records a time. The situation is Jesus is on the cross. He is facing imminent death. He looks down on those who were within close range where he could speak to them. They were near the foot of the cross. And Jesus in John chapter 19, 25, this records a time from John. John's making the record of this. Is speaking of the time when Jesus asked John to do something. We pick it up, John chapter 19, 25. Follow along with me. If you see it here, let's read it. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple, finish it for me, there he is. John made records of himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Near her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, I'm just going to back up. Last week I talked, if it was the last week or the week before, I talked about how when I was in school and I told the story of the first time, I don't think it was the last time, and I'm being honest here because I have two of my sisters, biological sisters, not just sisters in the faith here with me. I just want to welcome my sister Marilyn, my sister Darnie. Wait, guys. They're visiting with us from Peterborough, from Edmonton, and we've spent the week together. Uh, uh, so I'm being honest. I don't know if you remember this part. It, it was probably you wanted to forget it. I know mom and dad did. But okay, I was in grade two, and the teacher moved my desk right up next to hers. And for a moment there, now I understand now why she did that. It had to do with distractions. But she moved, Mrs. Lennox moved me right up to her desk. And I thought for a while, I thought she did it because she really likes me. Nobody else got their desk up against Mrs. Lennox. Right up against her desk. And she really likes me. And I looked around the rest of the class, you know. 
look where I am. I'm thankful because Mrs. Lennox, I know, had multiple choices. Now, I don't know if any of you just moved up. And it wasn't because I was particularly special. I realize that now. She had some choices. She could have put me in the corner. They did that back then. She could have put me in the hallway. They did that back then. And she could have sent me to the principal's office. And they did that then too. And none of those would have had favorable responses. But she pulled me up next to her desk. Number one, that I would not be a distraction. Number two, I would not be distracted. And number three, she gave some extra effort and help to me. And it was good. It actually turned out really well. But in that moment, I thought I was extra special. I think John, in some of the interactions with Jesus, felt like his desk got pushed up next to Jesus. And so he would refer to himself, I'm special. Jesus pays extra attention to me. And I don't know so much as in a boastful way, but in a sense that he really felt it. Today, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm parking there, quite honestly. Because I'm intrigued, why was John constantly referring to himself as the one who Jesus loved? And we don't see that in any of the other writings. Why did John do that? Why was this important to John? So, back to this text. Jesus is on the cross. He sees his mother there. Again, John's writing this. And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, said, Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. And the Bible says from that time on, this disciple, speaking of himself, took her, Mary, into his home. I want us to reflect a moment. I want us to reflect a moment about that whole incident. It made the gospel writings. This is important or else it wouldn't have been recorded. Now we're following John to the heart of Jesus. So we think about this. I'm going to say it's a safe bet that John dearly loved Mary, Jesus' mother. Jesus would not have sent his mom into the home of somebody who felt threatened by his mom, would not have sent Mary into a place where she felt unsafe. It wouldn't have happened. So there was obviously a good relationship, a wholesome, a healthy relationship between John and Jesus, or this would not have happened the way it did. Is that fair to say? John would take Mary into his home as promised. From what we know, that was in Jerusalem. In the entirety of their time together, they lived in Jerusalem. Now, what would have it been like to have Mary in your home? There's where our imagination could just go a little bit farther. What was it like to have the mother of Jesus in your home? Now, I'm going to suggest that it would have been a source of tremendous insight to have Mary in your home for a number of years. Who knew Jesus better than Mary? Surely she recounted stories late into the evenings around the oil-lit lamp. Stories about Jesus' upbringing. Stories that the rest of the disciples would not hear. Now John has written this later. He writes back, the one whom Jesus loved. So why does he get to that place where he is convinced his identity is locked into Christ? So here you have John and Mary. John looking after Mary, tending to Mary, putting his covering over hers to make sure that she is provided for in society. The stories that would have been asked, and what would you have asked? And I've just thought of a few things. I probably would have asked straight up when Mary was in my home, Remember, they had no TV, no Netflix. 
So there's lots of time in the evening. I probably would have asked um, Mary when, when you met Gabriel. I have some questions about Gabriel. Remember the story around Christmas, Gabriel? Uh, Mary, what did he look like? Describe him. How big was he? Gabriel would have been, I think, big. I don't know. Um, what did he sound like? Tell me about his voice. Uh, did you know it was an angel at first or, or not? I would have continued some questions, and there's many questions, and you would have, I'm sure, as well. What about um, Mary? Did you ever wonder if the siblings of Jesus, your children, would ever follow Jesus? Remember, the, we have accounts where they didn't believe in Jesus. They mocked him, actually. Mary, I mean, who of us as parents haven't wondered, would our children, would all of them follow Jesus? And some of you maybe still. So I, that would have been a question, Mary. What about, because you had children, you had other children younger than Jesus, and they didn't believe in him. Did you ever doubt that they might never believe in Jesus even after he rose from the dead? Did you ever lose faith in your children? Okay, many questions come. But know this, John, Mary would have spent years, we don't know how many, we're not told, but years together in the same home. Luke chapter 2, 19 tells us that when things happened, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So Mary had a lot to say. She pondered things. She was a reflective woman. And if Mary was like most aging mothers, I imagine she told story after story after story of the life of Jesus. Many of our early church historians agree that John resided with Mary in Jerusalem. And then when Mary died, here's the question. Then, John, what do you, I mean, you knew your life assignment by Jesus up until her death because Jesus said, John, look after mom. But after she died, what does John do now? Like, it's over. It's changed. Mary's gone. John, where do you go from this moment? And, and we aren't told the details of that, but that would have imagined been something in which John would have had to work around. I wonder when Mary was dying. We're not told how she died, but if she died, dying, not of quick death, if she was dying, was she aware of her family around her? I don't doubt John was one of them. I mean, he looked after her. Jesus didn't ask one of his siblings. He asked John to look after his mom. And as she was dying, there were maybe the children around the deathbed, is oftentimes the case. And John, I'm pretty certain John would have been there. I wonder if Mary was aware of her other son, Jesus, the resurrected one. How many of us, maybe you know of those, and I have, around the deathbed of a person who is a follower of Jesus, who in their dying moments has this revelation of Jesus. I wonder if Mary had that of her son, her son, the son of God, there in the room at the point where she walked from this earth into his arms. Was Mary aware of that? These are all questions, but remember, we're following John to the heart of Jesus. So we're trying to understand what causes John to refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. We're trying to grapple with that. Because my heart stirs. I don't just want to be a follower to get to heaven. I want to know the love of Christ. I want to know that. And John probably is the best writer there to help us to understand what it was to experience the heart 
of Jesus. So, John, when he had taken her into his home, John, really there's nothing notorious about his life. We, we don't hear a whole lot in writings regarding John's life. He kind of stays in the background. Not a lot written about him by the other writers. And I want to make a point here. And here's the point. In the dead of night, when insecurities crawl upon us like fleas, I think all of us, maybe most of us, have terrifying bouts of our own insecurities. Panic moments of insignificance that we don't really matter. Our human nature, in times like this, can often pitifully fall to the temptation to pull out a tape measure and begin to gauge ourselves against people who look more gifted and more anointed than us. And that's a mistake. There's a temptation when we feel our lives don't measure up that we begin to try to compare ourselves with someone else and we do not measure up. We feel totally insignificant and unworthy. And I... Going to hazard a guess, John would have had to walk through this because not much claim, acclamation came to John. He was not the big one. He didn't get the star. He didn't get the spotlight. He didn't get the, the attention that Peter got, Paul got, others got. Even James, who became General Sue, he didn't get the attention. He got kind of lost and pushed back into obscurity. And yet here's this guy who knew that he knew that he knew he's the one Jesus loved. John chapter 13, back to our text, tells the story of the Last Supper. The disciples are eating a meal together with Jesus, probably the most quoted meal anywhere. Before we read this text again, let's remember that John was with Christ for over three years. John had gone out with the rest of the disciples John had, in the name of Jesus, cast out demons. He had, in the name of Jesus, seen the sick get healed. He had, in the name of Jesus, spread the good news from his mouth and saw transformed lives. John had been there. But somewhere along the way, God would build a man to whom he could entrust some of the most profound words ever recorded on parchment. What kind of man, what kind of man writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? Who writes something like that? Someone who Christ formed through difficult times. John, when he would write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, I don't think there are better love letters anywhere in Scripture, 66 books, than 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Who gets a hold of someone's heart and so forms it to make this fisherman who was filled with the sons of thunder, him and James were called at one time, sons of thunder, that's hardly, you know, people that are in touch with their feelings kind of guys. Fishermen, sons of Zebedee, who gave up the ambitions somewhere along the way and we will talk later in later weeks about some of those ambitions because he had some ambitions, but would move from the place of an ambitious disciple to a passionate disciple. How is the forming of such a person made in the hands of Christ? 
often simply referred to as the brother of James. He was simply brother of James, the little, little brother of James. And after Christ's death and resurrection, months would turn into years, would turn into decades. John's life would go off into the fog of obscurity. And yet his life was far from empty. His life was far from insignificant. No possible way. I mean, it's important to appreciate the interim years, the obscurity of John's life. And in those years of obscurity, he is developing a relationship with the giver of life. It's not to be lost. The time frame would fall about A.D. 80, A.D. 90. Decades would pass. John would serve from Jerusalem. He would move to Ephesus and live, they believe, most of his life in Ephesus. We are not told anything about John in Ephesus. Nothing. Yet we're told about Paul in Ephesus. There's, there's chapter after chapter of Paul in Ephesus, but not John. He moved to Ephesus too. But his life is just in the background, lived in obscurity. Can you imagine living in John's place where disciple after disciple's life would be taken? James, his brother, was the first but was not the last. And one after the, one after the other, Rome, A.D. 60, where Nero rose in power and martyrdom was common throughout the empire. One of the disciples would be crucified. The other disciple would be beheaded. How did John get the word? How did John grieve? We're not told. But he did. One after the other, word would come of the disciples being killed one after the other. You're always living in constant awareness. You could be next one after the other until they are all gone. Violent deaths, every one of them. And John, you're the last one. What kind of things do you imagine he felt? What it went through his mind as he lived and maybe felt he lived in this solitary place as the only of the 12 left. We don't know much about what happened between Christ and John in those biblically obscure years, but one thing we know for certain is that somewhere in the midst of those years and decades, John formed his identity as one fundamental identity, the one whom Jesus loved. Somewhere in there, he became convinced he was the one who Jesus loved. He knew who he was in Christ. We learn who we really are, don't we? In times when we are faced with the prospect of going through the places of wilderness, obscurity, lostness, and having to lean on him, having to find Christ in a deeper way. Do we believe he proves his love to us in times like this? And if so, had any of us been with John during these years of silence in Scripture towards John, we might have been tempted to give up or drop it into low gear and not press on. But we do not get that from John. John knew two fundamental things. I believe he grabbed onto these things through all those years. Two fundamental things. Here they are. Number one, he knew what it was to be called a disciple. And secondly, he knew he was loved. And I want to just, if, I can, if you remember anything, he knew he was called and he knew he was loved. And if we just 
Maybe you need to hear it. Maybe you need to rehearse it. He has called you. He has called us out of darkness into his glorious light. You need to know you've been called. You are not here because your mom and dad were Christian. You are not here because of a great meeting you went to and your heart got captured. You are here because God called you. He has called you. You are his disciple because he called you. And if you are here, and maybe this morning you are here in our presence or you are online, church family, and you do not feel called, you do not call yourself a a son of God or a child of God, a disciple of Jesus, know that he is calling you. His call is secure. You are called. But know this second thing where John grasped this. And you are loved by Christ. John would grasp hold of this over and over. I believe John, if he identified himself, if he went to a meeting, he would say, I am John, the seed of Zebedee, the son of Salome, the brother of James, the last surviving apostle, am he? The one Jesus loves. Hmm. The beloved disciples. He's the beloved disciple. Somewhere along the way, John, the son of thunder, became the son of affection. And that, my friend, is why he was putting these profound words into place. That's why they stand out from every other gospel writer. I remember a few years ago when we had our children's summer ministry, there was, uh, we had boxes of books that had been purchased here. It's called So Loved. And it's the gospel of John. It's from the Gideons. And uh, it's it's just the gospel of John is what it is. It goes through all the chapters, 21 chapters, in a very simple way that children can read it. Uh, And and so I went and found that this week. I found a copy. Uh, So loved. This is the most read book of the Bible. And it should be. Because it comes from the perspective, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. And if we don't understand and grasp the significance of that love, then we have missed the call of salvation. What's probably the most quoted verse in the Bible? John what? 3.16. Help me out. Say it. For God. Okay. And, And look it up. Look it up. Feel free to look that up. It is probably the most cherished verse. Why? Because he loves us. Who wrote it? John. Why did he write it? Because he's the one who Jesus loves. He's the beloved disciple. So this is what he writes. This is the book when I traveled to Cuba and on our missions trip, we went to what, uh, one of the cities there. I won't mention it because I'm online, but we went to one of the cities there. And the pastor we worked with published the gospel of John, similar to this, and gave it to the entire city of, of many thousands of people, and multitudes were converted just by reading this one book. Because God loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And so John was grasping this. And as we come to a close here, I want to come back to the text we started with. John 13. I come back to the text where I want to go back to verse 20. So let's read it. We're going to pick it up. John 13, 20. Let's read it. Very truly, I say to you. Remember Jesus' last supper, sitting with the disciples? 
This is Jesus speaking. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples, we picked this up earlier, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? I want to close with this. I want you to grab hold, snapshot of this scene again. We've, some of you have read it multiple times. John is with Jesus, the Last Supper. Jesus and 12. They're reclined at the table. The upper room. It's where we are going to, and we were told by Jesus, to not forget what took place. Remembering the Passover. Remembering the emblems of the broken body and the blood shed. And we commemorate that. Different churches in different ways. Some calling it the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Many different ways, communion, but we commemorate that. This is the moment. Here they are, John 13. They're around the table. Jesus and the 12 disciples. Custom would have it. Why is John next to Jesus? He might have been next to Jesus because he's the one Jesus loved. That is possible. But it's also very real that it was a family picture. It was a family picture and we acknowledge that in the Passover celebrations, even today, the, the cedar, that you would have the youngest of the family next to the father. Often the youngest of the family, the youngest child next to the father, if there were things that had to be done, the youngest would run and do it at that great supper. So maybe that was why John is next to Jesus at this moment. You have John next to Jesus, and at this Moment, this Passover supper. The room is small enough for Peter to ask the question after Jesus had said, one of you will deny me. One of you will betray me. Not deny, but betray. And Peter asked the question, maybe he was at the opposite end, but the, the table's not very far away. Peter asked the question to John. He prompts John to ask Jesus who. Now, the, just the way he said, I want to read that part again. Verse, 20, uh, verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So uh, picture this. There's, there's stuff here. Now, if you are listening to this on a podcast later, you won't get the, the picture here, but Peter, it says Peter motioned to the disciple. So we have no indication he said John's name. Motioned. It's kind of like, you, well, ask him who he means, okay? And, and motion, who, it's kind of like I picture him kind of throwing his who. Who's he talking about? Ask him who. Now, nothing is strange at this moment, but now I find this very strange. What happens next, I think, is one of the key marks of understanding John's saying and identifying himself as the one Jesus loved. Because now what happens, verse 25, note what John does. Leaning back against Jesus, he asks the question. Leaning back against Jesus. There is nothing in the Passover book of rules that says you are to lean against 
the father figure. There's nothing there. There's no reason that John had to get extra close to Jesus because he's right next to him that Jesus would be hard of hearing, that he had to get extra close for Jesus to hear. John, when asked to talk to Jesus, his first instinct here was to lean against Jesus. You've seen pictures of the Last Supper. You've seen, and different ones are trying to depict what that leaning looks like. We're not really 100% sure, but he leaned against Jesus. John records this himself. I leaned against Jesus before I did anything else. I leaned against him. John leaned on Jesus because he wanted to. John leaned on Jesus because he loved Jesus. John leaned on Jesus because, get this, Jesus is leanable. I don't even know if that's a proper sentence. John leaned on Jesus because Jesus is leanable. I don't know what that does to you, but that just ministers to me. You can lean on Jesus. Jesus is approachable. Jesus is lovable. He's not a teddy bear. He is the son of God. He is almighty God. And you can lean on Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm going to stop right here. Why does John refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves? Because you can lean on Jesus. There's an old song. Some of you know it. Learning to lean. I'm learning to lean. Say it with me. I'm learning to lean on Jesus Finding more power than I'd ever dreamed. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. You don't just lean on him. You learn to lean on him. You learn to lean on him when you are in times of prayer. You just don't recite your prayers. Do you lean on Jesus? You learn to lean on Jesus when you are in Bible study. You can study, you can talk about the text, you can talk about what you think it means, but have you learned to lean on him who is the word of life? Have you learned to lean on him? You learn to lean on Jesus in church when we worship and there's a call, would you just worship him? And if all your worship is words or singing or standing or sitting, then have you learned to lean on him? You learn to lean on him in times where you are in celebration. You learn to lean on Jesus. That picture of the Last Supper, when asked by Peter, ask him the question. Motions speak louder than words in this moment. John leaned on Jesus. And Jesus conferred with John the greatest revelation a person has ever received in the book of the Revelation. Because John is a leaner and Jesus is leanable. Praise his name. I want to invite you today, move to that place with John to learn to lean on Jesus. He is the son of God. He is almighty God. Hills melt like wax in the presence of him, yes, but he is also him who loves you and he is leanable and John understood that and his life was molded around the knowledge not between his ears but an experience that Jesus 
loves me and I love him. And he would learn and grow in relationship. When we gather together, it's more than just more information, more than just fun, more than just fellowship. Oh, may there be the place where we have learned and are learning to lean on Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.